This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we talk DIY public land sharp grouse hunting, mixing a little rough grouse conversation with one of my regular hunting partners, Ted Summer. Welcome back to the show for episode number 119. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. A little bit of Onyx conversation in our show today. It is an invaluable tool, and the trips that Ted and I are discussing on today's show would not be nearly the same without the use of Onyx Hunt. Know where you stand this fall with Onyx. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. If you want to get the most out of your dog, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. To help unleash your dog's maximum potential, check out the new Yukonuba Premium Performance lineup at yukonubasportingdog.com. And by CZ USA Shotguns, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind. From the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-sides to the Upland Ultralight Wing Shooter Elite over and unders, CZ USA has pumps, semi-autos, they've got a shotgun for you. Check them out and find your next bird hunting gun at cz-usa.com. 
and by Gumleaf USA high-quality handcrafted premium rubber boots that will outlast the competition. Check out their complete selection and use the promo code PUP10 at gumleafusa.com on your next pair of boots. And by Dr. Callers. For over 30 years, Dr. has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Check out their collars and the rest of Doctra's products at Doctra.com. And by ESP, electronic shooters protection, custom molded, custom fit, hearing protection. Check them out at ESPamerica.com. And by Trinity Kennels, home of the Epignol Breton. If you want to learn more about Trinity Kennels, check out Project Upland Podcast number 88 with Jeff and Josh Ryder, French Brittany Spaniels from Champion Bloodlines, field tested and family approved for over 30 years, trinitykennels.org. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels, unparalleled pet protection, one-piece rotomole design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to dakota283.com and check out the newly designed website and find your next kennel at dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Drew G. Drew sent me an email, sent me some feedback on the podcast and some interesting info about the way that he sometimes hunts wood found it enjoyable appreciated drew reaching out love to hear from my listeners anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway all you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show you can leave the show a rating leave us a review in your podcast app we love those subscribe to the podcast share the podcast send us some feedback or a guest suggestion you can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com all right, here we go. Today's episode is with a friend of mine. Gotten to know him over the last handful of years, mainly through upland bird hunting. We have now gone on some out-of-state trips together. We've hunted our home covers in northern Wisconsin. I love spending time with Ted in the woods. He is one of the most effective natural hunters i've ever come across you look at his instagram account at ted the surveyor you're not going to see pictures of trophy animals and all kinds of crazy stuff but i've spent enough time in the woods with this guy to know that he has a killer instinct and he is consistently and continually into the game no matter what he's chasing and pursuing and he does it a lot he does it with his family and he shares a lot of it through his instagram account ted's got a wealth of knowledge although he will make no claims of being an expert he has plenty to share and i can attest to that and the info he shares in our conversations about hunting sharp tails and huns out west to hunting rough grouse and woodcock in the northwoods back home is top-notch stuff i'm certain you're going to enjoy this one it's prime time hunting season hope everybody's out there having fun and i hope this podcast is helping you pass a little time on your way to the next bird cover with that said let's get into today's show let's welcome into the conversation and on to the project upland podcast ted the surveyor aka ted summer And we're rolling, buddy. Welcome back to the Project Upland podcast. You've been here before, not as a standalone guest. So I don't know. Would you call this your big debut, Ted? Oh, I don't know if I have. I don't know if there's anything that could be called a big debut. I'm just kind of hunting a lot, and Nick keeps pimping me for information. So you know, if I can share it in a podcast, then then all the better, right? But well, that was the plan. I wanted to call and pick your brain and get the hot off the presses report from the grouse woods and i figured if i was going to do that we might as well record it and make it public information right sure i had an agenda for this call and we will we'll definitely get to that and it's not about the rough grouse woods but as you know it's uh middle of october and 
all I want to do is hunt right now. And I'm thinking about getting out this afternoon. I was getting rained on. Are you getting rained on at the moment? Yeah, it's been raining steady most of the day. Uh, started about eight, nine in the morning, but I don't, you know, these days when it's raining like this, Nick, you just got to get out there and hunt. Those are some of the better days I've seen, especially up by you. It's been real dry. Yeah. And so sometimes that light rain, you'll find the birds being real active in that light rain. I think they like to really get out and grab some greens, you know, because they got a lot of the moisture on the leaves and stuff. So hunting the rain, hunting the rain if you can, but yeah. Yeah. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I know you very well, Ted. So that kind of uh, lends itself to me starting to ask you questions right away. But we should we should uh, let the listeners know that Ted Summer has been on the podcast before. You were a co-host with me of sorts when we took a trip over to see our buddy Del Whitman last summer, and we did an episode on gun fit and shooting. Had some fun there. But give us the basics where you generally call home which might lend itself to where you uh where you kind of hunt sometimes but the basics ted well i live in northeastern wisconsin rhinelander monaco tomahawk area i'm not afraid to to say where it is because really i hunt hunt all over the place northern wisconsin probably seven or eight counties for sure of yeah that i will hunt in a season sometimes nine or ten depending on where friends want to meet up and stuff like that so hunting pretty locally uh during the week on short hunts and a lot of times those are kind of out of the way places small spots that get overlooked they're not like a big spot where i'm going to go on the weekend so i'm not too worried about putting a hot spot on that kind of stuff so uh and then when i have more time you know running around wherever I have covers that I'm daydreaming about all year long. I try and get a half a dozen of those kind of hunts where you're hunting all day long, you know, within a, within a spot or an area that has a lot of diversity and a lot of different kind of cuts you can hit in a short amount of time. So, and your trade, uh, because it somewhat applies to the things that you like to do. (laughs) I work as a land surveyor and, uh, (laughs) Just this spring, this is a big life change. Yep. Um, this Just this spring, took a job with the, with the Forest Service. So the Shawamigan Nicolay National Forest, which a lot of people are familiar with in northern Wisconsin, it's about 1.1 million acres. So I'm the surveyor for the National Forest there, basically as a, I work as a technical resource for the entire National Forest. Um, so there's six uh, district offices. And so it's when anybody as an employee for the Forest Service needs landline, or boundary questions answered, that's up to me. So that's my day-to-day job. And then prior to this, I was self-employed as a surveyor on point. Land planning was my business there for about four years. And that's when I really ramped up. When I went to work on my own and I thought, well, I have control over my old schedule and I set a goal to try and hunt every day in October, even if that means a half an hour at a time. I've been trying to do that, Nick, every year since I know you have. Since 2016, and I haven't made it, I, I've gotten pretty darn close. A couple Octobers, I missed one I'll, or two days. One or two but, days. Wow. But, man, to miss one or two days, like you were damn close. It must have been must have been kid stuff or family stuff. Uh, sometimes it was dog breaks, too, you know, yeah, or bad yeah. weather. Or bad, you know, you get a bad weather. Yeah, you can so, have a weather day. But, no, I, to be honest, I think that's something that you've noticed with her friendship or whatever is the kid stuff and the family stuff, I I've got to say I have a really good support system for getting out hunting a lot. My wife my wife and I have two young boys, and 
you know, it's family first for us and, and we are constantly trying to get our kids outside and active. And, um, yeah. So she, she has really supported me in doing that. And she comes with plenty of times too. So we try and do family hunts as much as possible in the fall where everybody's out, but I don't, I never want to use uh family as an excuse to say, I can't go hunting. I, I tend to go the other way and I try and try and do too much with the kids sometimes. And I would say sometimes I push it a little too far and try and be too aggressive and hunt too much. And then I'm a little disappointed when we got to turn back if it's not going well, but yeah. But mostly if I'm not hunting is because it's bad weather or um, a work situation, a long day or something like that, that I just don't make it out. But Yeah. Well, yeah, f- you mentioned the surveying, and f- some folks may recognize you uh, from your Instagram handle, which is Ted the Surveyor, and you're pretty good about sharing really a lot of that stuff. You share your family outings, and, I mean, we've been seeing more of that lately, but I know that sharing what you do is is you get you get enjoyment out of that, and I know you talk to a lot of folks and provide advice when people ask questions and that's kind of a kind of a fun thing to do now i don't want to miss an opportunity to shamelessly plug your business but as on point land planning is it closed for new projects new proposals uh no that was one of the things when i went to work for the forest service i maintained the ability to to still own and operate the llc so i still do work but i i am not seeking competitive type work i'm um, I've got some clients that I've done work for that I'll continue to do work for, but very, very limited and absolutely no bidding on any work that any other surveyors are bidding on. So it's all just word of mouth, but, uh, but yeah, I can still do it. Okay. <laughs> I still have, I still have all the equipment that's all paid for. So yeah. that's, so that's kind of why I want to keep it going because, you know, it's a substantial front end investment. And then when you have all the tools, you kind of want to kind of want to make use of them and, Sure. And I really, I really enjoy it too. So, I mean, I enjoy the survey work for the forest service. It's very unique. It's not, it has nothing to do with development. It has nothing to do with land sales that are happening like it is in the private sector. When I worked there, I would say there was a little more pressure, uh, timelines, et cetera. Um, even though I didn't specialize in development work, you know, there's, you're dealing with different local governments and clients and, realtors and banks and lawyers and attorneys and so i still do some work but it's not not of the competitive nature yeah well we could definitely send the masses of the project upland audience your way but we'll they'll have to sort that out with you ted (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's cool though because we can again i said i mentioned that it was surveying kind of ties into your passion i know you're you know you you love being out on a landscape and you're pretty handy with a map too but you're also kind of in your new role. I mean, we could say that you are helping to maintain and, and keep our public lands operable. Would that be too much of a stretch? No, I think it really makes me smile, actually, because um, the bulk of my workload is related directly to timber sales that the Forest Service has coming down the pipeline in okay. the future. So, I, so various places on the National Forest, they'll have project areas that they're looking at, you know, the forestry or the forest forestry staff takes care of like the planning and they it's different than a county forest where a county will look at uh, you know from year to year they're setting up their sales and they set up the sales one year they they get them sold and they're cut with the forest service it's a sometimes a three four five year process out in front of a timber sale which is really well documented um, especially by rough Girl society so but there's always a 
there's always in the back of my mind, I feel like I'm, I'm helping in some way to help get more timber sales accomplished yeah. on the national forest, which has been a hot button topic in the rough grouse hunting circles. So, but yeah, it definitely, um, to answer your question, you know, I mean, it is tied to, I do feel satisfaction on what I'm doing now, knowing that there's going to be some timber sales cut right along those property boundary lines that we're putting in. Yeah, that's cool. And some of the things you're mentioning about timber sales on national forest, that has been a, has been a big topic. And I, I don't like, I'm not going to put you in a spot here, but if there's anything you can't comment on, but is that longer, what I really want to know is that longer time frame that you're working with, is that, do you think that's due to regulatory stuff? And it's just like, there has to be more ducks in a row to cut trees on the national forest. Oh yeah. De- I mean, it's, there's a process, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and that process is in place for the national forest across every national forest, you know, the, the, the whole national forest system. Yeah. It's the same for every national forest. They've got to go through the process. And, and that all came about because of the way some things were done through the seventies and maybe eighties and things like that. And there was, you know, it's well documented the the background of how timber sales were uh, got a spotlight put on them, and then of course the process now it just takes time. But that that doesn't mean there isn't good work going on. Yeah. You know, especially within the forestry staff, all of our our foresters and um, and now through Good Neighbor Authority, a lot of the states have access to uh, to help set up timber sales with the Forest Service. So there is a push to get more wood cut. Yeah. And I'm pretty proud to say on Shawmut Nicolet, there's uh, one of the highest producing forests on the country as far as volume goes. So that's cool. Um, yeah, it's e- it's real easy to to point a finger and say the national forest needs to cut more wood and create better habitat. Right. But then you know you've got to realize the infrastructure that's in place and just and, and that's and that's something that uh, conservation organizations around the country have have been trying to do too to help form future policy to make you know, things happen a little uh, quicker. So, yeah. Yeah. I know just from my proximity and closeness to the rough grouse society, seeing some of the, like you mentioned the, well, the good neighbor authority, that's not for conservation organizations, but like the stewardship agreements and the ability for the conservation orgs to partner with the forest service to get some of that stuff done. I think those are good opportunities all around. Yeah, I agree. So more importantly, are there any grouse on the Schwamigan Nicolay national forest? Yeah, we see them everywhere we go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, the the questions you get, you know, uh, both while at work, people driving around. I mean, we see a lot of out of state hunters. The the national forest lands obviously are fairly easy to find and well marked up, and so they get they get a fair amount of pressure. And over the years, northern Wisconsin, plenty of counties in northern Wisconsin have done just a great job of advertising to the traveling grouse hunters. So I mean, that's why it's a mecca for the yeah. I mean, got a, I got a phone call from grouse hunters in Kentucky the other day that I had talked to five years ago at a restaurant, you know, and they had saved my number because they knew I surveyed in northern Wisconsin. They called to see what grouse numbers were like, you know. So <laughs> the, uh, the answer to the question about is there any grouse and do you see them, it's like there's grouse around. There's always grouse around. Yeah. Even though, uh, and a lot of the national forest butts up right up against county forests and state forests and yeah. industrial forest lands. So, I mean, you're you're always traveling through this mosaic of forested properties and varying different types of habitat that are soil related, you know? So it has been interesting to see where you see the road birds versus where you don't see them, even though you know the birds are there, but. Are you, are you noticing an interesting pattern there? Yeah. I I would say 
when you're driving through areas where there isn't a lot of ground cover, you're in the stands or in the woods that you're driving past, meaning like greens, right? Yeah. Or Ford. In my mind, I'm seeing more road birds, you know, birds outside, alongside the road um, when I'm driving through those types of areas because there's always greens along the edge of the road. And then they come out there to get a little grit too, you know, so it's like a double whammy for them. Yeah. So, plenty how, of those out there. How many acres is the Schwamigan? Do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, it's one point. It's just under 1.1 million, I think. Wow. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's big. I hunt at some areas that are not that far from pieces of it and i honestly spend very little time in there but that's more a testament to the fact that we just have incredible public land resources through all ownerships you know state county national industrial there's just so much in really in minnesota and wisconsin where i where i primarily hunt but yeah we're, we're lucky for sure yep indeed all right let's get down to the details are we in the prime time of the rough grouse hunting season right now ted Oh man, what isn't prime time? You know, <laughs> prime time. Prime time is when you can get out. That's How's true. That sound? That's but, true. But uh, I will say the leaves. You know, the leaves coming down kind of signals the what I call the killing season, right? Yeah. I mean, through uh, the early season, when it's green and thick, you you uh, the dogs get on a lot of birds, but you don't necessarily see a lot of birds. You hear them flush, and the the shooting opportunities are limited. Yeah. But I mean. Uh, but you can certainly get into a lot of birds as the family groups are still together, you know. So first couple of weeks in October, uh, some RGS biologists will be able to better comment on this. But, I mean, the distribution happens where the birds are, family groups are breaking up and young males are stretching their legs and trying to find their own little turf. And so you're hearing a lot more drumming right now. Plus the leaves are coming down rapidly. And so, yeah, there's no question why the middle of October is like the Shangri-La of, uh, for the grouse hunter where they, you know, everybody puts October 15th to 30th on their calendar and says they want to be in the woods those weekends, right? Yeah. I think those are the two, those are the weeks, you know, you should be looking at. Some folks, I think some folks jump the gun a little bit and they they think, you know, early October, which isn't bad. I mean, you can, you can obviously have some beautiful fall days in early October. But, yeah, if I'm, if somebody asked me, like, when is the best time to, come up here to hunt i'm gonna say the last two weeks in october and perhaps even the last and sometimes i think you'll probably you may may or may not agree but sometimes folks will they get a little worried about woodcock especially if you're traveling they want to come up here and they want the ultimate mixed bag the rough grouse and the woodcock and they are unpredictable i mean you never know exactly when the woodcock are going to be at their heaviest but i know in recent years like in the last five or six we pretty much have had some presence of woodcock at least in the areas that I hunt, all the way through to the end of the season, which is like early November. Now, they're not as thick at that time, but you can find them, for the most part, throughout October. Yeah, I would agree. Back to the, the question about the, the, the peak time, and, and you hit the nail on the head. It's like, for the for the folks that don't hunt grouse a lot, you want to have as many contacts as possible yep. to, up your, to up your odds of actually bagging a bird, which is the ultimate goal, even though we both know, I mean, the whole process is enjoyable. But yeah. If you put all your eggs in one basket and say you're just going to hunt grouse and come up late October and November, the traveling bird hunter that wants to have a lot of activity and maybe get their dog a lot of contacts, they sure value the the woodcock being in the mix with the grouse for the reasons you stated. You know, a young get a young dog, a whole bunch of contacts. You know, do some shooting, and then if you bag, if you happen to to get some good work on some grouse, then it's a bonus. But but certainly, with I mean, if you're just focusing on grouse. 
my opinion is later in October, you know, the shooting becomes so much better. The visual, yeah, you're never gonna you're never gonna kill a grouse you don't see. And starting right now, you know, the leaves coming down, you're gonna pick up that bird flushing. You can you're gonna hear them, but the sooner your eyes get on them, the the sooner you're gonna start moving your body to shoot them. And so we're just getting into the prime of of what I what I consider the prime right now. And and really, I look at November myself. I, I you know this, Nick. I call November the killing month because yeah. By then, like we've had some snow, everything is gray, and uh, there's no more color really in the woods. And that second trigger, you know, sometimes that bird's getting out there further, but realistically, 30 yard, you know, 30 yard plus shots are are a possibility. And the girls just have a harder time once they get in the air; they're in trouble, you know. Yep, I've come to very much appreciate, you know, as long as snow of significant levels holds out, the grouse hunting can be as good as it gets, really late into the season and i like that time of year mainly because with the leaves down and like the cover completely down i mean all the all the claustrophobia and all that stuff is gone you just kind of feel like you can walk anywhere and the other thing that i look at you can really see the woods for what they are with the cover and the grasses down i mean you could see all the stem density and where there's actual legitimate stem density and where there's real cover and you'll see a lot of empty space too because again that covers down and it just i feel it gives you a totally different look at the cover that's surrounding you i think mm-hmm. and the running birds that i mean it's easier to know where a running bird is headed for sure you know? yeah yeah right now the Right now, on, especially on blustery, windy days, dogs are pointing, and sometimes those birds are running 60, 70 yards before they're flushing, or or if they even flush. You know, you a lot of people are seeing un, what they call unproductive points. Well, it's a grouse that's run off, you know. And right now, with even that light grass up or even brown ferns that still haven't, we haven't had a snowfall yet. And until that snow happens, that grouse can hide a million places. Yeah. You know? so. Yeah. Speaking of running birds, you, you hinted at it there. I watched the, your Instagram story the other day. Tell me a little bit how that played out and why, like, did you not have a gun in your hand? Why did you find yourself in the situation you did where you <laughs> tied Fitzy up and were following that grouse? Well, in classic fashion, I mean, I know this is a pretty niche podcast, so if people want to go and watch it, my Instagram stories are very what I call raw, you know, <laughs> there's not a lot of production that goes on. I just kind of start taking videos and I immediately post it if I know something cool is about to happen. So, but I really enjoy that. And I think people, it resonates with people too. I'm, I'm always shocked at the amount of messages I get from, from folks that, that see that stuff. And they're just like, wow, that's, you know, that's pretty cool. Or, you know, the stuff with the kids, I get a lot of positive feedback from that, you yeah. know, like, oh man, that's great getting the kids. Anyway. So yes, I was hunting and, I have permission from a private landowner to cross some property that exists between some public land that's county land. And then there's a piece of private land that's MFL open, meaning managed forest law that's open for hunting. Um, But there's a, a heck of a nice little shortcut that goes through this private piece that's not open to hunting. But I've talked to the landowner and I can cross the property to get to the backside of the county land away from where there's a pretty big block there that gets hunted a lot. And uh, this is a good segue to talk about like some tactics, but you know, once we get to the middle of October, pretty much everywhere that has a woods road or a logging road has been hunted. You know, I mean, there's just people out all over the place, which is awesome. I love seeing grouse hunters out. And one thing that I do to try and take advantage of the pressure is get into the backside um, of these 
of these areas or cuts that I know hold birds that have been pressured because, you know, not everybody's in there killing every bird that flies. So, yeah. Um, and I don't believe that the birds get pushed back. I just believe the birds get conditioned to where the pressure comes from, you know? So sure. they know they've seen dogs and people coming from this way. All of a sudden, a little bit of pressure comes from the other way. They maybe don't know where to go to escape because now you're between their escape cover and where they've gotten, you know, flushed to get away from someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just one little thing. Anyway, so I was on my way out from hunting, actually. And uh, so I put Fitz, the little English setter, on a leash to walk through the property per the landowner's wishes. Um, he says, yeah, I don't care if you cross it. He says, just don't let your dog run through. So walking on the trail... And he pulls hard off to the side. And he does a pretty good job healing. You know, he'll walk right alongside me without a lot of pressure. And uh, he, all of a sudden he pulls hard off to the side, kind of dips down under a, a fallen down little aspen there. and gets rigid. You know, I mean, classic Northwoods bird dog point, tail up. Yep. So I just leaned the gun against the, the gun was already unloaded, so it didn't matter. But leaned the gun against the tree. And I thought, well, I'll take a video, see if I can get a flush on video here. And, uh hooked the leash on a broken off branch and double duty, like steadiness training. Right. Hope I was actually kind of hoping to get a big flush right in his face. Right. And, ha and having him want to chase it so he could realize he can't chase it, you know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. It was a good setup really for that. Yeah. So I just real quick turned the video on and started going in typical fashion, the way I would try and flush a bird. And then I spotted it on the hill in front of me. It was running. So I kind of chased after it, hoping that it would flush. And, uh, it just kept running out ahead of me. And so, uh, I probably went 50, 60 yards off the trail, but it never flushed. So just an example of what, what the grouse are doing this time of year, they, especially in the little bit older Aspen stand, like, you know, 12, 13 year old Aspen, uh, really opens up in the understory and those birds just, they may be near a piece of cover or greens, but as soon as they feel that pressure, a, a bird that's been flushed once or twice will take off running, you know? So, yeah. That was it. But yeah, I had quite a few people taking notes about that. They they thought I was being a real sportsman, that I wasn't shooting it because it was on the ground. <laughs> I wouldn't do that anyway, but uh, no, that wasn't the case at all. The gun was unloaded back by the dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting though, because like you said, you get a dog, like talking pointing dogs, if you've got a dog that goes on point and you just don't produce anything, maybe you release the dog and the dog loses a track or you know when nothing comes to fruition we're left really to kind of scratch our heads and wonder what the dog was pointing and that's just that's part of the game that's part of the mystery you can't figure it out but then every once in a while something will happen like that where you can put it together you, you see it's a grouse and then you see the things running up ahead of you and doesn't want to fly i've always said i mean they're not going to outrun a dog but i always thought if a grouse if the first thing that they did when they saw really like a human predator, if they just started running, like a lot less of them would get shot. You know, it's their propensity to stand still and stay motionless that gets them killed by us more often than not. But also a good bird dog is going to gonna pin a few of them down too. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, those birds, it doesn't take them long to learn either, especially in the high-pressure areas, which a lot of the places I, I love to go get a lot of pressure, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not hunting covers myself more than probably once or twice a season but but i know for a fact especially you put a hunter walking trail sign out there those places are getting pressure oh yeah and uh you know your dog goes on point and nothing happens in there by the time it gets to mid-october well those birds have gotten pretty smart and the ones that the ones that don't flush 
or that don't run are the ones that are more likely to get shot. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Well, we could definitely continue talking about rough grouse and maybe we'll circle back to it, but I do want to hit on one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you today. And that was your trip to out West in September, where I spent a couple days connected with you hunting sharp tails and huns as we have for the past three years. This year, you did things a little bit differently in that you connected with some friends out that way, myself included, but you, you did a solo trip and it was really, you know, a DIY solo sharp tail hunting trip and wanted to unpack that a little bit, talk about your thought process and trip planning and really try to make some of the information and the strategies that you used available to the listeners. So do you want to give us a overview of your trip west to chase sharp tails and huns earlier this year in september and then we'll we'll dive into it a little bit yeah certainly that's and that's one of the things i really like about you know what you've got going with the podcast nick and the listeners and is the fact that you come at everything from the stance of wanting to share information with with other folks that could do the same thing right or at least if we share our experiences you know it's not always going to be a layup you know to say okay here to go do this and you'll shoot birds because I can only share what, what my experiences are, but I, I certainly love to interact with other folks that are getting into hunting or maybe want to build confidence to go on a trip like that. Yeah. And, um, or even in the grouse woods too, you know, just, just encourage more people to get out there because really once, once you get out there and do it, you'll see that the learning curve on some stuff is pretty steep, but, but overall you start, if you just go and start going and start to learn at least one thing every, every day, if you can learn one thing, you know, it's going to help you in the future and just help build confidence and, uh, and get people out there. So yeah, basically I think this is my seventh trip to the prairie, a couple different States, a couple different types of area. So, I mean, I've got what I call reliable experience on where to find birds or what I'm looking for when I'm driving around. But, but for the most part, um, the patterns are the patterns are somewhat repeatable, but for the most part, it just takes it takes getting out there and just trying new spots and then adjusting to the conditions too. You know, the birds aren't always in the same spot at the certain time of year. You know, they they're feeding on different things, they're moving around, and so this trip when we met up at um, by Tyler's place, you know, we had been there and done that. So I this was the third third round of kind of hunting there so it was real fun to meet up with you guys for i think it was a day and a half i kind of hunted around where you were but yep. after that i really wanted to go explore some new terrain or new topography some birds uh, further west into more breaky country kind of get away from the rolling pasture prairies a little bit and challenge myself and the dogs to to find both sharp tails and huns in that country and, and it definitely was a challenge but it was a lot of fun just kind of being mobile, not having to do any advanced planning, not really doing a whole lot of talking during the course of a day, somewhat <laughs> kind of recharging to yeah. just be you and the dogs. And so, so that's what I did. The overview basically is spent a couple of days kind of doing hunting areas that we've already hunted and then spent about four, four days hunting all new stuff, which was probably the most, you know, the, the most refreshing part of the hunt. So. Yeah. You mentioned Fitzy, the English setter, earlier. Let's just mention Tika and tell us a little bit about the dogs, just so folks know who you had with you. So I traveled, 
you know, you got a Ford full-size truck, so pretty easy to get two dogs and one person yep. with, with minimal camping gear. You know, that was back in September, so the nights were only like 40, 50 degrees. I didn't need to be too warm. But, yeah, the dogs, so Fitz, we've mentioned him. He's a year-and-a-half-old English setter, Northwoods bird dog, Jerry Coulter, Jerry and Betsy there, similar breeding to um, to uh, Hartley, or I shouldn't say similar breeding, but the same kennel. Yep, and uh, Rose. Same breeder. Yep. Yep. And um, Tika's a German short hair pointer. She's coming on six years old and really settling into her prime. I've been real impressed with her this year. She's shown a lot more, just more patience, more maturity, noticeable difference from four and a half to, to this year. She's just been around the block. And like when we got out to the prairie, she does the whole track. She points and tracks and points and tracks and then sets up and, you know, eventually sets up when she knows she's got the bird within range and and that's a heck of a lot of fun to hunt with totally contrasting style to the field bird english setter and fitz you know fitz is casting out two three hundred yards and making big swings and then standing there like a statue pointing the birds and it's it's something to behold to watch a field bred setter run on the prairie i mean that's talk about dna you can you can just see their dna unrolling in front of you and it's it's pretty amazing to watch a dog bred to do something like that just run wild on the prairie while you kind of just walk in a straight line, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, that's, those are the dogs. Tika's from, I want to give a shout out to Dennis Stackwitz up in Gwynn, Michigan. Yep. Uh, Aspen, Aspen Thicket Grouse Dogs. Dennis, Dennis has bred, uh, some really great litters of short hairs made for the grouse woods. And, uh, Dennis is a guide up there and kind of an interesting story. I wanted a puppy about 15 years ago. <laughs> I was in the market for a short hair pup and got a hold of Dennis remembered his goofy polish name and uh didn't end up getting a pu- didn't end up getting a puppy because i met my wife who had a 2 year old uh short hair who uh we just recently put her down she was 16 years old last summer but when the time came again to get a short hair pup i remembered his goofy polish name and looked him up and called him up and ended up getting tika from him uh you know 5 6 years ago once our oldest son was 3 years old and we said well that Now's the time for a puppy, and yep. man, she has been uh, just a natural, driven bird finder from the start. You know, um, I've never, never claimed to be a dog trainer, so my dogs have, have never put like a real fine polish on them. You know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna impress anybody that's seen some real well-trained, super steady bird dogs. But I have a heck of a lot of time, or a heck of a fun time, hunting with both of them, and uh, look forward to you know, continuing to do that. They're both, both producing like crazy right now. So it's great. Yep. Yep. I've hunted over both those dogs and they're bird dogs. That's for sure. All right, let's go. So we've got the overview of your trip. We went West. What were you looking for in, if anything, when you were selecting an area of the state to go hunt, were you looking for anything when it comes to topography, you did mention breaky country, so that's part of it. You can talk us through that a little bit. But were you looking at density of public land? Um, and we can, I mean, I think people could figure it out if they wanted to. We were in North Dakota where we were hunting, and that's really what all that we need to say. But I bring that up to say that North Dakota, we've talked about this before on the podcast, they've got trespass laws that are very favorable to hunters at this point whereas if land is unposted if it's private land unposted you can hunt it without permission which lends itself 
to some really good hunting opportunities where I have traditionally gone in the state. And I, I know that where you were, it's a little bit different. So what other things were you looking at when you selected an area that you wanted to go and explore, Ted? Oh, well, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head with, with talking about finding public land because yeah. that was the key to everything. And I mean, you've got a, you've got a sponsor of the podcast that you talk about a lot. And I mean, it's, it's revolutionary on X for the bird, the traveling bird hunter. Yeah. Um, I mean, the big game hunters is set, obviously use it a lot too, but if you want to do an impromptu road trip bird hunt, similar to what I did, and you want to jump in the truck with a buddy and you're feeling inspired, man, you turn that on and you just drive around, right? And the, uh, the state lands is really what I focused on when I got out there. Yep. And I mean, there's a big, not afraid to talk about it. The little Missouri national grassland, you know, that's a million acres. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's obvious, you know, like that was on the list of places I wanted to drive through, but, but beyond that, you know, there's a pretty well distributed network of public pieces of property, not big, huge blocks. And so, Really, I start at like landscape level, you know, if you're going to drive into a region, what I'm looking for is pieces of public property that when I zoom in and look at the air photo of it or the terrain, first of all, it's approachable. You know, it's not like completely steep or it's not completely the whole entire section is, you know, a big wetland or something like that, which a lot of the, some of the WPRs, am I saying that right? WPAs? Yeah, some of the WPAs. Yeah. In North Dakota, some have very little water on them and others have a ton. Right. You know? So yep. if you're looking at that as an upland hunter, some of those spots, especially now pheasant hunting, people traveling pheasant hunting are just are targeting those, I'm sure. But really what I'm looking for is approachable terrain, but there's got to be some sort of rolling aspect to it. You know, the sharp tail, if it's real flat, in my experience, um, the sharp tails just for whatever reason aren't there. You know, um, I like to see some major ridges that are substantially higher than the rest of the country around them. Um, if that makes any sense. So when you pull up, when you pull up to a piece of public and you're taking a look at it and if you're at the highest point and everything falls down away from you for as far as you can see, and there's not really an undulating um, pattern to the terrain where you can, you know, you can anticipate where those hillsides might have some feed on or, um, with the way the wind is blowing that the birds if, if you get a really windy day you can anticipate that the birds are hiding a third over the ridge on the leeward side of the ridge or something like that you yeah. know those aren't tried and true patterns but i'm just throwing an example out there if it if it's real flat i'm not as likely to walk it you know secondary to the terrain is kind of a broken texture to the grass and tyler webster and um, I think Ben Brittingen, am I saying that right? Yeah, Ben Brettigan. Yep. Brettigan. I could be messing they, it up too, but <laughs> sorry. Yeah, man. they put they put they put together a, a nice little video scouting sharp tail habitat and I would direct people to that. I mean that they do a great job of giving a vertical or a an aerial look at what does sharp tail habitat look like in the yeah. region of the state we hunted. I'll throw a link to that in the show notes because it's uh it's 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 an Onyx video and and Tyler's a friend so yeah we'll I'll throw that in the notes. Yeah, and I would say uh, yeah, Nick. Of course, I don't want to be you know I don't think you mind me selling Tyler's podcast too. No, of not at all. <laughs> he's he's got he is he's by far the the most knowledgeable sharp tail guy that I know as far as yeah uh, 
I mean, in his region, you know, you go to, you go out to some parts of Montana or, you know, Idaho, uh, other areas that have sharp tails, obviously it's going to be different. Right. And right. so, I mean, these rules that I'm talking about are not rules, but observations are, you know, based on my experience in, in the seven or eight trips that I've taken. So, um, but that, the broken texture, when I talk about that means, so you don't have like that long, like knee high yellow grass throughout the whole property. And you see a lot of that out there. And you, when I hunted in South Dakota and I know some of the areas of the Sandhills in Nebraska too, you get that long yellow grass. And if you're coming, especially from the Eastern part of the country and you haven't seen that type of grass. And when you first drive out to the prairie, you look at that and you say, Oh, this is really thin cover. This is what they're talking about. That yellow grass, if it's consistently thick the whole way and it's knee high, that's, that's too thick for sharp tails. So I like to say thin to win, you know, like when you cut the card, thin to win. So the, the thinnest, the thinner the cover that you can get away with, uh, meaning not completely grazed right down to nothing, but You'd be surprised at how little cover will hold birds as long as there's feed out there. Yeah. So. Well, and that's that's an interesting point, and we talked about it a little bit when we were out there. But it, I don't necessarily mean to start a debate between you and Tyler since Tyler's not here. But I know that Tyler talks about he really, I mean, his preference is very thick carpet-like grass, but still short. And yes. I know that I know that you know what that is, Ted, and you've seen it. But yeah. you also have keyed in on, and I've seen this now from hunting out there a couple of years with you, you key in on some areas like some areas that I might pull up to early on in year one, maybe two, I'd say, gosh, that just looks so thin. And you can see all the way down to the ground at certain points. But the thing about North Dakota is you kind of feel like you can see everything because you can see so far, but you really can't see 50 yards beyond the truck, even if, even if you can you know, physically, but it's like, you don't know what the cover looks like until you get in it. And so just because you see some bare spots and some really thin grass by the car, it doesn't mean that there's going to be pocket, that there won't be pockets of grass, like you said, just thick enough to hold birds. And I've seen it, I've seen it play out where, you know, don't be turned off by something that's too thin. Now you might have some strikeouts, but really you could have that anywhere. And if you have cover, that's kind of thinned like that in some areas what you could end up with is a situation where the birds are concentrated into the really key areas yeah and, and you're exactly right and something that i carry in the truck with me is binoculars too so sure. if you can if you can see part of a section like so you pull up to a property and if you're on the back side of a hill and you can't see the whole property and, and if the roads are if the roads are such that you can be on a different side of the property and look up into it a lot of times these you know, the rolling terrain out there lends itself to draws. I mean, there's a lot, there's a ton of critters out there hiding in those draws, right? Yeah. And uh, so if you can, and using air photos too, you can look at, if there's a main draw that runs through a couple sections of land, meaning, you know, some sort of drainage, and if there's fingers that come off of every one of those drainages and each side hill has the right kind of feed for sharptails, they're going to be in there, Yeah. you know? It's just a matter of where, even though, when you get out of the truck and walk, that property might have been pastured with cattle, you know, the year before or two years before. And you get out and you go, oh, man, this is way too thin. I feel like I'm walking on a sidewalk. Yep. So as soon as you get into some relief, you know, meaning, you know, where there's a break in the terrain, I look at it as almost like helping you predict where the birds are going to be. Your dog can kind of hunt to objectives if they do that, yep. you know. Yeah. 
And the other thing is too, you know, you, I tend to want to walk thinner stuff, but sometimes you get out there and you look at it and you're just like, well, that's too thin. Well, don't waste your time. If you, if you're not feeling confident and you get out there and you look at it, and you're like, no, it's too thin. Just turn around to the truck, go somewhere else, spend an hour finding a new place to hunt rather than burning your dog up for two hours on a crappy place. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So. You got to be able to pull the plug and for sure. Yeah. You're not going to, you're not going to be guaranteed birds in every single spot, but like you said, from, from my short experience, and really the, this is kind of the point of the conversation is you've been out there seven, eight times, Ted, I've been out there three times. Tyler lives out there and hunts out there all the time. So, you know, as far as experts go, yeah. you know, he knows way more than, than we'll ever know about that country. But the point of this conversation is that just because we don't live out there and hunt out there 30, 40 days a year, doesn't mean you can't go out there and find success. And really it's a very inviting style of hunting and it's, mm-hmm. you can pattern them and you can find success, talk to the right people, look at the right resources. You can absolutely go out there and do it yourself. Yep. Yeah. The, as far as worrying about it, a debate between Tyler and I, I'm not too worried about it. We get along pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and, I, yeah. and when I say, when I say thin to win, exactly what Tyler talked about, like short, but thick, you know, that's a, that's a function of the type of vegetation, you right. know? So it's not the great. If, if the whole property is nothing but grass that's been grazed three years ago and it's thin, so in my mind I'm thinking, oh, it's thin, but there still has to be that food base. So yep. buffalo berry they throw out there, um, different parts of the country have different, regionally have different feeds, but in general there's got to be some sort of, di- it's like hidden diversity when you're on the prairie. You drive by and everything looks the same and you think, man, what is there out there for uh, the, the birds to eat and probably the most underrated thing is the timing of when the grasshoppers all dies the sharp tails out there are just hammering grasshoppers throughout the late summer and into the early fall you know high protein and when you shoot some of those early season birds they're just loaded with grasshoppers but you get a couple hard frosts out there on the prairie and those grasshoppers start to tail off and that's when the birds can really get concentrated into the berry patches and things like that where they hadn't necessarily been um, piled up in those spots before because you can find grasshoppers anywhere you know yeah so yeah and the two like the two main sources of berries that i think i tend to see we we've tend to seen in the last couple of years you've got rose hips and then you've got buffalo berries some people call them snow berries they're they're like short green shrubby looking bushes that have white berries in them and they have not been very hard to find if you are in the right kind of stuff you're going to see buffalo berry from my experience would would you agree with that yeah definitely you know i mean especially when you get into that relief like i talked about in draws when you get off of the top of the hills or the the rolling kind of flattish crowned hills and you start to get on the sloping part you know it, it seems like that's where you're finding more of those types of berries and another one is autumn olive you know it's like a, a oh, lower yeah. shrub yep sometimes sometimes that you can pick out on an air photo too, like it looks like dark patches or dark modeled patches. If you zoom into the correct level of air photo, you know, you can see that texture, if you will. If you zoom in on an air photo of a public piece of property that you're scouting out and when you zoom in, everything looks like a monoculture out there and there's no different shades of grass or there's no little circles of buffalo berries and patches or no shrubs in the draws or shrubs along the edge of a wetland. And that kind of thing. I mean, those are kind of 
when you're trying to figure out what place to target, that's kind of how you do it. You get your feet out there on the ground and you recognize what these things look like. You start to recognize what they look like on an air photo. And then you start, instead of driving around and wasting a lot of time, you can pick out a couple, two or three pieces of public land. And really what I was doing was I would hunt, hunt one dog in the morning, could take a break for a while, and then I'd pick two or three spots, drop waypoints on them, hunt the other dog in the afternoon, or, you know, still in the morning, but before it gets hot, and then take the hot part of the day and drive around, you know. It got to be up to 75, 80 degrees, and so I was doing drive-bys in some of these public places. You know, you're driving a half an hour by the time you get around it. Yeah. But that that driving time and that advanced scouting time is paying off. And then when I when I would drive by one that would look good, I didn't necessarily hunt it. I just marked a spot and said, oh, this is worth hunting. And then the one day I had when it was 85 degrees by 1 o'clock, I probably put on 200 miles, you know, driving around just looking at spots. But then when it got dark that night, I drove to, you know, one of the better looking spots and just pulled off the side of the road and slept right there, woke up in the morning and and went hunting, you know, and, and really, I, I would say that was the most valuable part of hunting by myself is just taking dedicated time to scout and find a pattern, know what you're looking for. And then by the end of the trip, had it kind of dialed in where I was finding the birds and then it was just having good luck with never being on a property before and then getting there, walking out and an experienced bird dog goes out there and finds the birds. Yeah. So, yeah, your dog's covering ground. I mean, that's kind of an X factor too, because that can certainly, certainly help. Like, we were talking, you can, you can see, and you can visualize these objectives. If you find the right piece of property, you could, you know, I feel fairly confident now that, you know, if I had a, if I had a different dog that didn't cover as much ground, like you could get them into birds because you can, you can pretty quickly put the pieces together as far as like where the birds are going to be. And you can identify those Buffalo berry patches, the autumn olive, you can see that the rose hips, the rose hips, you kind of, that's kind of like laced into the grass. You typically don't see that until you're right on top of it. But when you do see it, you know, there's like little strands of sagebrush in there and you just see that and you just know, like you could jump a bird at any second. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And then when you, once you establish kind of how to find this type of terrain or that type of cover where you've seen the birds and then you start driving around and you're looking at new stuff and something isn't right with a property. Like I mentioned before, especially in September or early season when it's hot, dog power is just a huge, huge deal. And you can burn up a dog, especially a dog that's all ramped up, you know, wants to run like crazy, a young dog, let's say. Definitely spend more time making sure you hunt stuff that looks and feels right. Because once your dog is burned up for the day yeah, on a, on a two, three hour run in an area with, that doesn't feel right, in my mind, that dog is done hunting that day, you yeah. know, so... Yeah. Let's talk about actually approaching the hunt and strategizing on a piece of, we got a piece of property picked out. What are the things going through your head as far as how you're actually going to get out on the ground and work the topography and the piece of property as it relates to wind and cover? Um, well, Nick, you've hunted with me enough and some friends of mine that hunt with me that you know that you talk to too know that i'm really into like the nuance of like getting shots at grouse yeah and uh our buddy our mutual friend mike that i've hunted with a ton you know he likes to he likes to uh and he's probably the most proficient bird killer that i know and he does it through just sheer covering of ground like when we hunt together i'm always amazed at just how this guy covers ground but then when we have conversations throughout the season, I start to realize like I'm not hunting nearly as much, but 
and and he points this out too is that you know i just i'm using a little more method to the madness when i approach a cover even the rough grouse woods and i think you can take that same that same mindset to the prairie even though when you look at it you're like there's really no objective here let's just go for a walk right there's folks that have much more experience than i that could tell you you know there's obvious patterns with sharp tails but when it comes down to it you find them where you find them but once you've hunted for you know a couple days and you start to recognize a pattern so this year when we're out there there was way less grasshoppers yeah so i started to realize that if i shot a couple birds these birds weren't just out feeding on a big flat with a ton of grasshoppers you know they were they were definitely in specific spots not as a rule but you know a higher percentage of the birds were it was it was windier this time than when i went the last several years and that also seemed to play a factor so uh, i would say number one thing i'm looking at when i when i pull up to a spot is even before you pull up like how are we going to hunt it you know you can look at where are the major ridges on this property because mm-hmm. one thing i'm always concerned with is i i want to stay up high and i expect my dog to cover most of the ground you drop down and you get low on some of these properties and you start getting into what is like thicker cover and like more pheasant cover yeah and typically speaking early season sharp tails the a hot, much higher percentage of birds i found higher you very i very rarely have found them very low down in those lower spots yeah um, and that, that just to really emphasize that point like it may be obvious to folks but just to be clear like the terrain and the topography out there can have an in it does have an influence over the cover and like you said if you if you're at like a low spot and you drive up and you pull up and you see really thick grass if there's ridges and knobs and good topography in there you don't write it off just because the grass right in front of you is thick as you the higher you get the thinner it's going to get and the sharp tills will use that stuff up high and who knows it could be an overlooked spot if people if other folks are seeing the real thick grass and they could keep on driving so the topography is absolutely something to pay attention to yeah and and 90% of the time i'm hunting you know we did hunt some of that private land open private land that was not posted yep. and we found birds in that but one thing i was proud of this time is i hunted 90 percent of the spots i or i think i only hunted one cover that was private that was not posted which Every is other really spot. saying something because the the density of public land in north dakota is not very high right yeah so i mean i did a lot of driving but yeah so even before you hunt you know these birds aren't dumb they live on this prairie the wind blows every day right they're used to the wind. When you come from, like for me, coming from Wisconsin, living in the woods, a 10-mile-an-hour wind feels windy. Yeah. Well, on the prairie, you know, 20-mile-an-hour wind is nothing. Those birds are just going about their business. You know, they deal with that daily, you know. So the first thing is not to be intimidated by the wind either when you get out there and think, oh, man, this is really windy. you got to hunt in the wind, and the birds are used to it. But you can use the wind to your advantage too. So when it does get really windy, you know, up over 20 miles an hour, I have a feeling that those birds, you know, tend to be either just over the ridge on the lee side of the wind or in small depressions like saddles. Yep. Yeah, not on the highest crown of the hill, but if there's a step down below the highest point where it flattens out like on the lee side of the of the highest ridge yeah. on the property. You know, I mean, that's a pretty repeatable pattern that we've had luck finding birds like that. And so what you'll do is you break down the property and say, "Okay, here's the highest ridge if I always taking note of the wind you kind of want a quarter of the wind or have the dogs somewhat coming into the wind you know 
you can never get it perfect every time and a great dog can hunt great with a tailwind but you know you want to increase your odds by kind of give them a quartering wind so if you can put yourself on the side hill of these highest ridges on the downwind side and you've got the wind coming over the ridge to the dog i mean that's in a nutshell that's the approach i try and take every time yeah you know so i'm putting myself not on the highest point of the hill it's tempting because you want to see the whole property yep those birds live out there year round they survive by watching for predators you walk over the highest ridge on the property every bird within a half a mile has now seen you you know they're not flushing they're not taking off but they know that there's something, something going on. Other, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's someone other than a cow out here. Yeah. Um, and I think people spook them more so than dogs. I think they see a lot of coyotes, you know. And so yeah. a dog running a dog running by, I don't think they necessarily move off. But say they're up on a high ridge and they see you come over the hill and like our, our buddy there, Garrett, you know, tall bunion. They see a six foot six guy with a cowboy hat and a big full beard like that come over the hill. And then, you know. <laughs> they're taking off. <laughs> Well, you know, 15 minutes later, the dog points them. Yep. They're still there. They're not leaving. They're not taking off flying, but... They could be on edge. Already, yeah, they've already seen you once. Now, they, as you approach, uh, you know, they might flush a little sooner than, you, than you'd hoped, and they might flush out there at 60 yards, and that happens a lot, you know? Yeah. Um, I think the topography and how you approach the hunt has something to do with getting better shot opportunities. You know, we like to think it's all about the dog, but if you can do things within your power to screen your presence, I mean, they're prey critters, right? Yeah. Everything is trying to eat them. So use a little stealth if you can. Yeah. And um, I really like that. And totally full disclosure, I picked it up from hunting with you in the, in the couple of times that we were out there because my tendency was, you know, yeah, flatlander. I mean, it's pretty flat out there too, but guy from the woods i go out to north dakota the first time and what do i do i get right up on top so i can see and look around and it's beautiful scenery and you love that stuff but i also know folks that do it a lot more than i do that you know i'll see them walk down a ridge line and they're not real concerned so that's not to say that there's only one way to do it but i tend to that mindset resonates with me and i like to do that and if there's if there are things that i can do without going too far out of my way to like i think you put it a really good way there to screen your presence don't think of it like an all or nothing thing because you can't do it all the time you can't always be on the right side of the wind you can't always be out of sight but as much as you can minimize your presence and and keep the dogs up you know checking the checking the rises before you do i think Mm -hmm. that that lends itself to productive opportunities Mm -hmm. yeah i know and i know guys run uh some of these field trial type dogs that were really bred to run with guys riding on horseback right. or, you know, folks riding on. So don't get me wrong. I mean, you can kill sharp tails without doing this stuff. I'm yeah. just sharing stuff that's worked for me. And yeah. if, and if I feel like it's worked for me, it gives me confidence. You know, I'm going to share that. And right. There's, there might be people out there that laugh, but, uh, mm-hmm. cause, cause you know, you can ride up on horseback on a dog that point, but that side of the coin you can say too, is like some of these folks are, super super experienced bird bird hunters dog handlers etc you know the dog's probably out there 300 yards what does it matter if you're you know walking over the highest ridge they're already moved on to the next ridge but this is speaking to the 
even someone walking out there with a lab or someone that's never hunted before, you can kill sharp tails without a dog if you want to. And these tactics could help you. You yeah. know what I mean? So, yeah. and the average dog hasn't handled a ton of sharp tails if you're traveling. And so something that you can do to try and get, you know, maybe your dog is only ranging 50, 60 yards, which a lot of, for a lot of hunting dogs, that's, that's probably pretty typical. And so basically you're walking the dog into birds instead of them running all over the country, finding them. And so just that little bit of terrain and then really starting to get anal. But something I've noticed hunting by myself is that I'm just a lot quieter when you're hunting by yourself. Yeah. You're not talking to people. You don't have multiple trucks. You're not slamming doors. I went out of my way to like park in low spots so that like even pulling into a property when you park at the highest spot, you know, that reflection off of your truck kind of similar, you know? So just being quieter and kind of putting yourself in the areas where you know that there's likely to be birds. I mean, all those things can lead to better shot opportunities. So thinking about heading back out there next year. I'm always thinking about the prairie. (laughs) Holy man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I've voiced, I've voiced that opinion on this podcast before and, like I've mentioned a bunch of times already, even on this one, I've only been out there three times, but it's just, I don't know, it's just such a really enjoyable and welcoming way to start the upland season that it'd be it'd be tough to imagine not taking a trip out there. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, something that uh, that I've noticed for me personally is I'm not a very good shot. So I I like to say I get shots at grouse. I don't necessarily kill a lot of grouse that I shoot at, but... Uh, what I've noticed is that with my increased prairie hunting in the early season is that I come back from the prairie right into the early October or late September grouse woods. And now that muscle memory with like pulling up and swinging on these birds out in the prairie with not a tree in the way has helped flatten the learning curve that happens every year in the grouse woods with, you know, a natural gun mount yeah. and just shoot it. and shooting at the grouse in the woods here as if there's, as if there's nothing in the way, you know, that's what you need to do to kill them. And taking that early trip out to the prairie gets the dogs in shape, gives the grouse here a chance, you know, or the leaves a chance to, the, the ferns are dot are dead by the time we get back. And then you're right into the, to the thick of October. It can be a major confidence booster for shooting skills. That's for sure. And it, it always, it almost inflates you a little bit out there. And then you come back and you're kind of brought back to reality in the grouse woods. But the way that you put it, it's interesting. Cause I, I've become a much better shot on grouse in the last five years. And I actually was fortunate enough to put a couple in the bag last weekend that were these particular birds were, I actually had pretty wide open shots, like for a rough grouse shot, it was like, you know, the stuff dreams are made of. But when you have that visibility, you just, at least for me and my muscle memory and my body has such a tendency, you know, I do it right. But when, when the visibility is limited, I find myself in this frantic, rushing and mounting and just screwing everything up but boy it makes a difference mm-hmm. when you can see the target yeah yeah it's i think that was the hook for me when i how i first started hunting the prairie bird i mean i knew about them of course you know i uh, desired a western bird hunt for a long time i had been pheasant hunting in south dakota for several years and uh we did really good on pheasants one day in november it was first week in november and uh a buddy of mine had brought everything along to shoot prairie dogs, meaning like he had, uh, you know, a heavy barreled long range gun. He enjoys shooting prairie dogs. And so he said, Hey, one day if we shoot, if we get limits of pheasant, we can drive a couple hours and there's some public land where they, I can find these prairie dog towns and we'll go shoot prairie dogs. And I said, well, 
uh, nothing against people that shoot prairie dogs. It just really isn't my thing. You know, I've got a couple bird dogs that I want to hunt, you know? So yeah. he said, well, if you don't want to do that, he, he says, there's sharp tails all over out there and prairie chickens. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So we pulled up, he went to go set up his gun, you know, sandbags and all this stuff for, I helped him a little bit. And then I took off hunting sharp tails and, uh, that very first contact and later in the season, they tend to kind of group up. The very first contact I had, I could not believe it. You know, I'm, I'm basically walking in a cow pasture, you know, grass only as tall as my ankles. And there was a little cut there. And my older dog at the time uh, was pretty much in her prime. And she pointed at the top of like a cut, eroded bank. And I walked down into the bottom and my dad was with me. And he stayed up on the high ground. I walked down into the, I shouldn't call it the bottom, but the, a lower area right in front of where she was the wind was coming right up into her face and it must have been 17 or 18 birds flushed all at the same time and i could not believe it you know just how not one tree yeah not a blade of grass <laughs> nothing in the way and i could just see them all you know and with a guy with a cross eye you know that should have learned to shoot left-handed because i'm left eye dominant like to be <laughs> able to shoot a couple to be able to shoot a couple birds on that flush man i think i was hooked right then you know just being able to see the birds like that so yeah we won't get too deep into the weeds as far as gear, but since we're on topic, tell me about the shotgun and gauge and load that you shot out west for sharp tails and huns, and if you were satisfied with what you've been shooting. Seven and a half, pretty much all year for me. Um, I would say that kills all the rough grouse that I shoot and has been very satisfactory on on the sharp tails, prairie chickens, even some pheasants, I'll, I will say I chose to shoot closer shots with the seven and a half loads, but that's what I've got in the gun almost all the time. And then for me, it's always the purple hulls. So I'm pretty, I don't want to, I'm not like a, a gear junkie, but I got hooked on 16 gauge. I had a single shot 16 gauge when I went to college up in Ely, Minnesota. And I had a little Ford Ranger and I could put it behind the seat in the Ford Ranger in a case, not uncased, not loaded. But it was out of the way, and this was not. This was a regular cab Ford yeah. Ranger that yeah. I had, and uh, that was pretty slick. My dad had that gun, and that was a gun he used as a as a, throughout his life, shooting grouse in farm country, single shot, sixteen gauge, just with just a bead on the end and a hammer, you know, and and uh, got hooked on the sixteen gauge probably that way. I did have a a twelve gauge Wingmaster pump that I bought with my own money and ice you know i think it was junior high high school or something like that but i always went to the 16 gauge for grouse hunting so got hooked on that and then uh i did use the 12 gauge but i kind of always had that single shot i liked taking it along and uh and my dad said hey you got to bring that back you know that's my gun not yours then i thought well maybe i better buy <laughs> buy my own go find one <laughs> yeah so i bought a oh i got I was on the 16 gauge forum on the internet and uh, got chatting with a guy that told me about a bunch of German guns that he had side by side 16 gauges. And so I met up randomly with him a couple hours away from home and he showed me a bunch of Husqvarna side by side 16 gauges. And then he says, well, I've got this other one that you might like. And I've kind of always liked the look of straight grip. But when you put this gun in my hand, I just liked it. You know, it felt good in my hands. Uh, It had longer barrels, which for some reason I thought I wanted longer barrels, you know, um, just because I'd had, I'd shot guns that had shorter 26 inch tubes in the grouse woods. And I just wasn't crazy about how 
quick it felt. I wanted something that kind of swung better for me. So the, I ended up buying this Belgian-made 16-gauge side-by-side with 29-and-a-half-inch barrels from this guy. And I had a dent in the barrel. Uh, the stock was a little beat up and oil-soaked and brown. And he didn't want as much for it as he wanted for the other guns. And I just said, I'll buy that, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and that was quite a while ago. So uh, that gun with the RST spreader loads in it, so the, the barrels are choked full and fuller. Yeah. And so I, I picked up some two-and-a-half-inch spreader loads and... That's my go-to in the grouse woods. Fairly tight chokes. I do have, since then, I've been fortunate. I won a couple shotguns, and then I I bought a Spanish 16-gauge side-by-side that has wide-open chokes and 26-inch barrels that I thought was going to be a woodcock gun. Um, but really, I've used that. I've used that in the grouse woods as well, but I always go back to the old Belgian gun. It just feels right in my hand, you know? So can you shoot 29-and-a-half-inch barrels in the grouse woods? Um, well, I do. I don't know. <laughs> it, it's argued whether I shoot well or not. Yeah. Um, I'm not afraid to share. I mean, I shoot at hundreds of grouse a year. Yeah. And, uh, my shooting percentage is probably around 20%, I'd say. You know? shooting, at, uh, shooting at grouse is half the battle, that's for sure. Yeah, but I get shots off. Yep. Um, I think going back to like the nuance of like getting shots at grouse is three-quarters of it is being ready, right? Yep. You know, so... When you got a dog that you've gotten used to and you know how to handle, you know when they're coming into bird scent, that gets you, you know, your adrenaline starts going and you're hyper-focused. I don't know if your listeners, if it might be a whole other conversation to talk about actually the shot process. You've, you've had plenty of shooting instructors talk about how to shoot a shotgun. Yeah. But I, there's a whole different ball game of shooting, getting a shot off at a grouse, you know, that's flushing where you can only see it for a split second you know yeah your, your gun mount kind of it happens whether you want it to or not and basically the gun goes off and you don't even know what happened you know and that's those are the grouse that i kill you know yep um, but i would say i i carry the gun i know it has longer barrels but i i almost always carry the gun upright meaning in my left or right hand barrels are almost always pointed up generally i'm going through heavy cover i'm not using the gun to pry my way through cover yeah I'm using my I'm using my offhand, whatever hand isn't holding the gun to push stuff out of the way. But I'm very aggressively approaching the dog when I know they're making game. You know, I've kicked myself in the butt even a few times being out lately, where I stood and watched the dog when I knew they were making game, and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna just watch here, see what happens. Then they point, and whether the dog got too close or not, or whatever, the grouse flushed and I wasn't in, in position. You know. Yeah. So I'm very. When I say aggressive, meaning like I'm very intentional about I'm moving toward the upwind side of the dog before the dog points a lot of times. And then the dog points, and I have an idea where the wind is coming from. I'm analyzing the cover in front of them. I've got those 29 and a half inch barrels, you know, vertical, but one slide away from my shoulder, yeah. right? I've got, the gun, I've got the gun generally up. My, my uh, forehand is forward on the gun, ready to push it forward toward wherever I see the bird. Yep. You know, my trigger finger is outside of the trigger guard, but my thumb is definitely on the safety. It's not pushing the safety, but I'm ready, right? Yep. And you kind of go in RoboCop mode, I call it, of like, now the dog's on point. Here comes the wind. I know there's a wetland down there. I know that bird's probably pushed to the edge, not going to want to flush across the opening. 
it's going to want to flush diagonal along the line, you know, or back over the dog. If I, if I'm able to put pressure back toward the dog, a lot of times the bird will choose to flush back over the dog instead of the person, you know? So you're just go into that mode and hypersensitive, hyper alert, as far as listening for a flush. And I've said it before, you can't kill a grouse that you don't see, but you can't see a grouse that you don't hear, or you might see it without hearing it. But if you see it without hearing it, you're already behind. Yeah, right? you're way behind at that point. Yep. Yep. So I'm not talking a lot. I'm intentionally trying to walk quietly and not like stomp on deadfall or shuffle my feet. I'm picking up my feet so I'm not dragging my feet in the leaves because I want to hear the flush. And if the dog is staunch on point, I'm marching around sometimes 30, 40, 50 yards ahead of where the dog is pointed trying to flush that grouse. And the second you hear it, you try and get your eyes on it. And when your eyes hit the bird, generally your hands are already moving and you're shooting. If you're taking more time than that, you know, you're not getting shots at grouse 90% of the time. I don't know, Nick, you like that? No, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. I, we're like, we started me asking you about those long barrels and I kind of did that jokingly only because I, there's, I know barrel lengths kind of like go in and out of vogue. And there was a time where shorter barrels were preferred and, you know, logic might lead you to believe that, oh, well, in the grouse woods, thick cover, shorter barrels might be better. And for some folks, you know, maybe maybe they prefer that. I've come to appreciate, quote, unquote, longer barrels, which for the most part is 28 inches, which, you know, if you're shooting 26, 28, you're pretty much, you know, you could, you're kind of splitting hairs between the two. But I know that, you know, on a double gun, you've got a shorter gun overall as it is because you have a shorter, there is no action space to take up it's the barrels meet the meet the firing pins and you can have a you can have longer barrels with a shorter overall gun length than some other mm. types of guns like mm. auto loaders and pumps and i'm thinking about ordering a gun from upland gun company and my buddy jerry havel and i've right now i've got it i've got it specced with 29 inch barrels because i want a little bit little bit longer so i'm i'm thinking that way and i actually have shot a gun with 29 and a half inch barrels in the grouse woods and it's not a mm-hmm. problem but yeah that maintaining as much readiness as possible in the grouse woods and that i know there are some folks that are content to essentially walk through the woods with a broke open gun waiting waiting for their pointing dog to go on point and they're going to walk in and shoot but i always kind of say i was a I was a grouse hunter long before I was a bird dog guy. And while I've, I've certainly gone down the path of investing in my pointing dogs and not shooting everything that flies. But when I get my dog to a certain point, or if the situation allows it, you know, I'll, I'll shoot a, basically I'll take a shot at any grouse I can, unless my dogs are making a mistake. And that's where that readiness comes into play. I've I've seen, it's happened to me. I've, I've certainly been caught red handed, but I see a lot of grouse fly away with folks that have their gun in one hand low or, you know, even worse, their guns on a sling on their shoulder. Like that's, you're going to miss opportunities that way. Yep. Yeah. And I, and the, the gentleman or the, you know, the well-polished bird dog and grouse hunter, if, if, if your, if your idea of a hundred percent successful hunt is that your dog pointed that bird, you walked in and flushed it, whether you, whether you got a shot at it or not, you know, walking around with an open gun on your shoulder, certainly is an enjoyable way to spend the day but if you're talking about just getting shots at grouse if, if you again there's nothing against folks that that do it another way i'm just sharing the way that i like to do it and yeah and uh when my dog does make game on those grouse 
I, especially heavily hunted areas, <laughs> when it opens up, those do- those birds aren't sitting there waiting for you to come flush them. You know, I mean, yep. they are a lot of times, but the aggressive, the aggressive, you kind of go on attack, you know, like if you're, if you're not in that mode, I feel like there's a lot of missed opportunities. Yep. I talked about that a lot. I did that the rough grouse um, grouse camp where we were mentoring hunters and talking about grouse hunting and basically spending a whole weekend. And uh, when I took two, three guys out, Hans and I took three guys out with Tika. And uh, the number one thing with people that have hunted with dogs a lot is they want to, they want to like walk to the dog where the dog's pointing, you know? So I'll say she's pointing here. And I literally was walking behind these guys. They've never grouse hunted and would take them and like point out openings in front of them. Like, okay, walk, get yourself in a spot where you can shoot, create shooting lanes for yourself by moving horizontally. Even, you know, sometimes I'll sidestep as I get into an area where I know a flush is going to happen because, you know, your feet are in better position to shoot than as the flush happens, you know? So, oh man, we, I really (laughs) enjoy, I really enjoy breaking down that kind of stuff. I know Um, it's fun. And I, and I know, I know thinking about it while hunting has helped me being a poor shooter an admittedly poor shooter it has helped me be a better shot at grouse, you know, physically putting myself in position to make a better gun mount by paying attention to how I'm approaching, you know, a pointing dog yeah. and, uh, and doing it aggressively with intention, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that is the nuance that you spoke of earlier where you're not going to be, you're, you're not going to be in the right headspace to be thinking about that stuff the first day you ever go rough grouse hunting in the woods but you keep going you keep after it and those are the things that eventually you will start thinking about and those are the things we like to talk about sitting around the tailgate or the campfire at the end of the day or on the project up podcast i guess in this case ted we could go on but we're gonna have plenty of time to talk this weekend we're gonna meet up for a little hunt in the north woods of wisconsin it's prime time i'm looking forward to it Thanks for coming on to the show. I appreciate it. If folks want to follow along in some of your adventures, or can they get a look at it? Well, maybe I, in a couple of years, maybe there'll be a book called Shots at Grouse. If you want we to keep talking about it. Resubscribe, you know, send me some money. I'll, I'll take some time, write a book about Shots at Grouse, just how to get shots off at Grouse. But no, Ted the Surveyor and Instagram, I guess, is, is the best place to uh, keep track of my fun stuff that I'm doing in the woods trying to go every day and uh try to keep it pretty real i don't uh, i don't fluff stuff up too much just kind of put it out there I'm, I'm in love with my boys my family and my dogs you know and try and show that and then uh, the folks that I interact with on the internet overwhelmingly is positive and uh no intention to grow that kind of thing or whatever but it sure is fun to share and i've really enjoyed seeing everybody else especially the new hunters yeah you can you can tell when they uh you can tell when folks are getting the momentum going with buying a dog and getting, you know, getting out hunting more. And all of a sudden you're seeing regular, you know, regular sharing of people's hunting stories. And man, there's nothing better than that. I just, I really enjoy it. I love it. Yeah, I agree, man. Well, I'm going to let you go today. I'm going to check the radar and make sure I'm not in line with any torrential downpours and I might be in the woods here shortly. Yeah, you bet. Well, good (laughs) luck. Little Rose. Little Rose is doing well. Hartley's still on the shelf, huh? Hartley's on the shelf. He's on the men. We're going to get surgery scheduled here soon. And Rose is taking full advantage of the increased attention. She's uh, she's She'll be five months old this month. So there's admittedly, there's only so much she can do and only so much she can hunt in a day. But we're working within those parameters. And 
she's doing a hell of a job. You'll see her this weekend. I know you shot your first grouse over. We didn't even talk about that. You, I think you're going to have to have a tailgate session to tell that story. Maybe we could do a maybe we could do a campfire podcast this weekend. We'll have to talk about that. Yeah, there you go. All right, buddy. All right, we'll see you next. Yep, take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. Quick reminder that this episode was brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA Shotguns, Gumleaf USA, Dogtra Collars, ESP Hearing Protection, Trinity Kennels, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to visit ProjectUpland.com to read, watch, and listen to more great upland hunting content. And please, if you enjoyed this episode of the show, leave the podcast a rating and a review that really helps us out and it helps more people find the show thanks again for listening everybody we'll catch you on the next episode of the project up the podcast This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.